brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Well, here we go, good people of the internet. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and we have spent many an episode traversing these troubled times and sifting through the false paradigms laid out all around us. And the more we learn about consciousness's role in reality, the more important what one believes to be possible seems to be. Yet so many slack-jawed sheeple caught up in the rat races and hamster wheels of this fabricated lifestyle don't even know what they don't know. Because they're told the system is doing its best across the board. GMOs to feed the world's growing population, chemical cocktails sold as some sick backwards medicine, and even with something like the quest for non-human intelligence. The tiniest bit of digging shows that, not only are there usually many better ways, in most cases the system actively suppresses the truth to the point of painting it as fantasy. But fear not, friends, because beyond the razzle-dazzle of the big machine, bright minds are putting the pieces back together in a whole host of areas, and one that's making a lot of waves right now is new energy. Call it Orgon, Zero Point, Ether, Overunity, or Electromagnetism, but several suppressed sciences and processes seem to yield cleaner, more efficient, and more abundant energies by harmonizing with our natural environment and the lesser-known gifts it gives. And as the tide continues to turn, we now have organizations like the Breakthrough Energy Movement and the New Energy Movement that actually work to promote, vet, and protect these working engines, batteries, and machines, as well as the inventors brave enough to upset the economic apple cart of the capstone cabal. Well, two of these fine folks are with us today, Gene Manning and Susan Manowich, the co-authors of a great new book called Hidden Energy... Tesla-inspired inventors and a mindful path to energy abundance, and these ladies are on the front lines of this new paradigm every day. Jean approached these new energy inventions as a skeptical journalist over 30 years ago and was clearly impressed with the field as she's been interviewing these new energy inventors and studying their work ever since. Her first book, The Coming Energy Revolution, came out in 1996, and she's since been a speaker at energy technology conferences in five countries. 
And as for Susan Manowitz, she is the president of the New Energy Movement and has spent 20 years in the areas of leadership consulting, emotional intelligence, resonant technology, and better understanding human dynamics to successfully transition through these global changes. Let it be known that Susan was also a participant in the Program for Extraordinary Experience Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts under the late great John Mack. And Susan's greatest passion is working with new consciousness, global strategies, and emerging technologies to help humanity override the current program. Here they are to tell us about their new book, Hidden Energy, and tell us exactly what's going on and what we can do to speed it along. Two shepherds of the secret sciences and true advocates for the post-scarcity system, Gene and Susan, welcome to the higher side. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a tremendous introduction. I'm all excited now. Uh, I try. I try. And <laughs> thanks for being here. This is super exciting. The topic of free energy and a deep dive into what's going on in this space is one of the most exciting things to me right now. We've been lucky enough to have many of the bright minds in your book on as previous guests, Aaron Murakami, Eric Dollard, Paul LaViolette, Walt Thornhill, and Gerald Pollack, just to name a few. But to find a book that really covers the spread of all this fascinating stuff is super impressive. We hear a lot of claims in these fields, but we don't often get the confirmation that I think a lot of us are really seeking. And I guess to kick this off, and maybe we'll start with Gene, what were you presented with that prompted you to be as dedicated on this as you have been for the last three decades? Clearly, this stuff has been validated to you beyond hypotheticals, right? Yes, it has. The first one was years ago, a scientist, Dennis Craven, validating the Patterson Power Cell independent testing in front of a group of very critical people. And then I've seen more under the wraps sorts of home experiments that proved it's possible to use just making circuits that use principles of resonance to end up with more power output than input, and it's not violating any law of conservation of energy. And the same with the approaches to the magnetic motor generators. They're really not violating the law of conservation of energy when they find ways to build things differently to get around the limitations of something called Lenz's Law, which we can go into later. So I'm not technically trained. My degree is in sociology, actually. Mm -hmm. But I am interested in the big picture, just like Susan is. And the implications for humankind are tremendous. Yes. And I understand why other journalists shy away from the field because it has been so marginalized and it's, you know, embarrassing to them to become an advocate or too interested. We're taught to be distant and rather cynical mm -hmm. <laughs> for good reason. But over the years, it's been clear to me that there really is, as you say, meat on the bones, and, <laughs> and, and there really are real developments that prove that what they are trying to do is possible, which is actually to bring clean energy abundance to humankind. There are many layers, many, many layers of interest from the physical, I get tired of chopping wood for fires here in British Columbia, all the way up to spiritual implications of more people possibly looking at the new science and new physics and realizing that 
the phrase we're all interconnected is not just words or speculation or somebody's mathematical theory. It's a truth that we're all embedded and swimming in this and immersed and interpenetrated with this sea of energy. And so what we do to one person, we do to ourselves. So the implications are so huge. That's more my interest with a background in sociology. I want to know what this can do for people, for ordinary people, for groups of people, for societies. Yes, very well said. And that is exactly my motivation too. Just the big picture is so exciting. And there's just so much depth to this stuff. And it isn't just one inventor, one discovery here and there. There's a long lineage of of different things. And they're compartmentalized because a lot of these people didn't talk to each other along the way. They had their own discoveries, which also makes it difficult because they come up with their own terms and all that kind of stuff. But it is very exciting. And to bring Susan in here, so often, if I want to do a show about these things, we go to the inventors and the engineers, at least the ones willing to talk. But this is a little different. You do have a master's in science, but I've heard you say that it's about a lot more than just having a working device. You're going up against a lot of powerful interests who specialize in keeping these things behind the curtain, and you're dealing with a programmed populace. So (laughs) I've heard you describe your role as a promoter or a strategist or an advocate. Talk to us about these roadblocks and challenges that you try to address that are necessary beyond just building a free energy device. Yeah, that's a very big question. And it has, you know, there's a lot of answers to it because I think we have to understand there is a suppression aspect, you know, that has happened and that has gone on. I mean, that's something that has occurred, right? So we we say that's there. Now, to what degree? Well, that can be anything under the sun. But then you, you also look at the fact that this information has not been out for a layperson to understand. So if people don't have awareness about something like this being possible, then it's not even going to hit their radar screen, right? So it makes it easier for things to go underneath mm-hmm. <laughs> a table and never come out, you know, like topics such as this. And then you also have, you know, the consciousness of people, whether you want to call it consciousness, mindfulness, emotional intelligence, you know, I mean, there's differences to each of those things I just said, but the human aspect of how inventors are coming up with their ideas, what they think is working versus what doesn't really work, the field of who they have in their social support system, who they have in their actual work support system. I mean, this is one of the fields that has the greatest opportunity to shift you know, so much of what we're doing on this planet. But at the same time, it's not organized well. And, you know, there are some groups that are able to organize, I think, fairly well that have, you know, fairly decent streams of funding, but that's really rare. And I think that we have a whole host of things to address at the same time. One of which is just showing people that this is possible, that this is feasible, this is possible. You know, there's something that hits individuals' cognitive dissonance that says, well, this just can't be. I mean, we've heard a number of stories that inventors have a device that's working, they'll show it to someone at a university or whatnot, and the person at the university says, well, no, this just can't be, and then they walk out of the room. So, you know, you've got this dissonance that occurs as well. So, you know, there's, again, a number of different things. I mean, we could 
<laughs> we'd have to get more specific questions to break that piece down. And one of the things that you know I do speak about as well is the financial part as it relates to the devices. You know, we have this idea that we'll we'll just put money into the development of these devices and then boom, you know, you're gonna have one that's working and you can go buy it at Kmart or Walmart or wherever Mart. And, you know, that's not these devices don't seem to work in that type of way. Now, why is the question that it makes us dig deeper as human beings of, well, maybe we really need to up-level ourselves and maybe we need to up-level how we hold the development of these devices and the potential distribution of them in a much more conscious way. Mm, I love it. I love it. And something I've heard you talk about as one of those little roadblocks and challenges that you kind of try to address is the idea of sharing plans or having safeguards against the loss of a single person, decentralizing that knowledge. Because as you say, there are times where one person starts to try to introduce what they've discovered to the system, either through a university or through the patent office or something, and that is when we don't see them anymore. And their material is lost because they haven't shared it with any other experts. And now the system has an easier time dismissing what that person discovered because they just say, well, where is it? You know, why hasn't someone else done it? So I think that's really smart and strategic. And I like that we can say this is a field now because it really wasn't a field all that long ago. Mm, yeah, I think it has become a field now. You know, and, uh, someone like Gene, who's been doing this for 30 years, I mean, the level of bravery and courage is huge to be able to say, hey, hey this is what I'm writing about. <laughs> this <laughs> is what I'm doing, right? So now, you know, with YouTube, Twitter, social media, we're getting additional information that this is a greater possibility. And it's not just living with one inventor that happens to live in a certain part of the world or another, that you're seeing inventors all over the world. So this is something that seems to be happening on a global scale. So it demystifies it as being something that, you know, is this rare anomaly, so to speak. And that's a good thing. And one of the things that I, I would also add is what I've been seeing from my world now, is it just because it's my world? I don't think so. But I've been seeing inventors with a willingness to collaborate more. And earlier on, you know, what I saw, and Jean can speak to her experiences, is there was a lot of, you know, holding that information in. And for, again, a whole host of different reasons, we think, well, they must hold it in because you know, they're afraid they're going to get killed or whatever. No, sometimes it's not like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sometimes they hold it in for reasons that is idiosyncratic to them. But I'm seeing less and less of that. Like we work with inventor teams that collaborate quite freely and they're main interest is about bringing these technologies because they believe that there's a shift that on the planet that's occurring and they have a to-do, you know, they've got a mission here, and that's to bring these in and bring these out to assist with this shift. So I guess one has to look at the values that the inventor is holding and exhibiting and seeing, you know, well, where is that in alignment with the other inventors? And, you know, we've been seeing that more and more often, and it's less of a problem, it seems, these days than it was in the past. Mm-hmm. Yes. And of course, there's just that classic issue as well that artists and inventors might not be the best business people. That is an <laughs> element as well. I get that. And so 
in the book itself, you list many of the devices and processes that are yielding results, employing natural tools, the vortex structure to convert energy, timed pulse electricity for big output from tiny input, special geometries and natural ratios that seem to help, toroidal motion, discharging voltage abruptly into an unsettled plasma. I mean, a lot of this stuff just is kind of a word salad to me, but I've seen these different things like even cavitation. People are doing really interesting things with just water and bubbles. And of course, electrogravitics is in there. I guess I would ask Gene with three decades looking at this stuff. Can you talk to us about some of the maybe different types of devices or even the the lab testing and the vetting that maybe you've seen or been a part of to help the listeners understand how significant and how broad and really how authentic these things are? Yes. When it comes to the lab testing, Susan's seeing more recent examples of it. The variety is, is one of the parts that I, I really have enjoyed that we're not putting all our eggs in one basket sort of analogy, but rather it's a choice. It's more of a rich diversity, which is really more like the natural world too, which goes along with the theme of tapping into energy that's available naturally rather than smashing an atom to try to get some power. So yeah, what they have in common is that they're all striving for approaches that don't have polluting side effects and getting there. So, yeah, the first one that, that I encountered was the magnetics. And it's pretty interesting to hear the people that are really passionate about the possibilities of working with the new super powerful permanent magnets. Well, they were new at the time that I got in. But the really super strong magnets that can hold so many more times their own weight. So that in itself is violating what the old textbook said, that magnets can't do work. So the question came up, well, where does the power come from? And that's what led the first inventor that I ever met to start seeking an answer to that. And he looked here and there and everywhere. And at the time, there wasn't as much talk about zero-point energy he ended up naming his company Pran Technology because of the ancient term prana, which is another word for the background energy of the universe or farther along on the spectrum toward a living energy is the life force. Mm -hmm. And that caught my imagination. <laughs> and the possibilities, they would have to Overcome not by brute force, because that just doesn't work. They would have to overcome something that's called Lenz's Law, which means that there's always a back force that comes up when magnets move past an electric coil or the other way around, and that fights against the forward-moving motion of a rotor. Uh, so there's always that to contend with, and because of that reality, the way motors and generators were built, you always had the problem of you could not get out more than you put in. You couldn't even be very efficient because of the problem of having to continually input power to overcome that force. So over the years, that problem has gradually been solved in various ways. Resonant 
technology, pulsed electromagnetism, just building things with a different geometry. So there's that approach, the first one that I encountered. I encountered back in 1981, the 1889, the big announcement about so-called cold fusion, which was misnamed from the beginning. And it's still a rather mysterious field in which the scientists that have worked in that field many years know that there's something going on that the mainstream is avoiding looking at that has real implications for humankind, but they acknowledge that they haven't really nailed exactly what is going on. There are different theories. So that's an interesting subfield because it's where most of the PhDs have come into the scene. And some of those academics that came in because of the widespread publicity about that cold fusion so-called announcement, those who actually have enough courage and curiosity and scientific honesty to pursue the anomalies and stayed in the field and continued to meet in conferences yearly, a few of those also had the courage to look a little bit farther afield and say, well, look at what we're finding out. You know, one one of uh, the scientists is a material expert who looked at microscopic vortices involved in certain nanomaterials that were used in some of the cold fusion experiments. And that led him to be more open to the possibility that there are other things going on that academia was missing. And so when he encountered, well, you rewrite about the encounter with the Manelis device, which is a solid state device, instead of just jumping in his car and getting out of there as fast as he could when he saw something that he couldn't explain with the science that he'd been taught. He hung around and he convinced the inventor to actually trust him with testing the device and bring in his team to test it in a very rigorous way. And they found out that, wow, <laughs> this does go beyond anything we've ever taught. Hmm. Yes. And in fact, that was exactly the example that, <clears throat> that I was going to bring up because Arthur Manalis, he had this electric car. And as you write in the book, the battery that powered it was based on the work of Floyd Sparky Sweet. I think we've talked about him in past shows, but he of course had passed. But Arthur built on that. And when it was tested and vetted by scientists and engineers, you write, they drove the car for 25 miles with four passengers. The battery capacity increased from 68% when they started to 89%. Then they let the car sit for a week, hooked it up to all this equipment, and it recharged itself. And the most interesting part, another quote from the book, data logging, recording substantial dips in energy at certain times. The engineers combing over the data found an exact correlation between those dips and the Aurora Borealis events. They were baffled by interaction between the device and the magnetosphere that surrounds the Earth. And that is one of those mind blowers that is, is really just hard to wrap your head around. But it's also just an exciting clue to the interconnectedness of everything, I guess. Yes, that really jumped out at me, too. I tie it in in my mind with the Oregon experiments that show that at different times of day, sunset and sunrise, there's a difference, it seems, in the strength of this life force field around the planet. 
and other very sensitive inventions that strangely operate differently in different locations and at different times of day. Mm-hmm. So there's so much more going on that's not mm-hmm. taught in the strictly materialistic, if you can't measure it, it isn't real, or if we can't measure it with the instruments that we have, you know, we don't really maybe have instruments of the sensitivity that would measure this. Whatever the life force is, a subtler level of energy or a higher frequency, whatever's going on, the test instruments that are used in standard science and engineering just don't detect it. Mm -hmm. Funny how that is. (laughs) Because it is difficult when you learn how many different roads there are to get there. It's like, then you start trying to reverse engineer, well, how is this a secret? And then you think about all the people going to school in the energy field and in the sciences. And you're like, man, it's quite genius, I guess, how they've crafted this box that the brightest minds can study this stuff for years, come out and become the best experts. But yet it's all the important stuff was is hidden and they don't seem to stumble upon it all that that often. That's what's fascinating to me. Well, the vested interests have had, what, nearly a century to make sure that people marginalize any certain types of knowledge that might lead us to these discoveries. I mean, we're really, really kept constantly bombarded with putting Einstein up on a pedestal as if everything in the (laughs) relativity theories is, is just sacred. Even though Einstein himself admitted at the end of his life in a letter that that is in public knowledge that he really doubted what he had said and really thought that there really is a so-called ether. Now, I say so-called, it's just one of the names. I actually like that name because it has the ancient echoes. Yes, I like that term ether too. It's just One of those funny things that we sometimes stumble over the language because there are so many words referencing the same kind of stuff. And Susan, to bring you back in here, when it comes to the conference scene today, are these devices that are demonstrated just powering a small light bulb? Or have you seen bigger things that could actually power a house or power a car as well or better than anything from the mainstream? How close are these things developmentally to a tried and true rollout? I would say that it's going through its evolutionary phase. There's the world that I see, right? You know, so Gene had alluded to the fact that we get involved in testing and vetting, and we do. Like when I got into this field, I got into it with an understanding that we're moving towards a subtler way of living and being. It's something that I'll say that I came in with, (laughs) that it was basically like, okay, you know, why are we doing the things that we're doing to the planet? Why are we creating these different technologies that seems to be taking away versus being in alignment? You know, that's something that's just been like a natural thought for me. So when I got into this arena, I'm also a New Englander. We're pretty pragmatic people. (laughs) Even though I lived in Hawaii for a couple of years, you know, that pragmatism is just kind of there. You know, I said to myself, all right, well, let's see it. Let's see what's working. When I first got into this arena, there was a lot of stories. And the stories are great, and they're interesting, and they're charismatic, and they pull people's energy in. But, you know, a story is a story. And let's say you're taking money 
to develop a device, but you don't have a working prototype or you have a theory. And again, this is not a negative thing. It's just saying, okay, you know, where are we really at with who has what and what does that really look like? And one of the things that surprised me the most was the amount of stories in this arena without actually having a physical device. And I thought to myself, well, that's a little strange. And then as I got into it more and more, I realized that I started to gravitate towards people that had physical devices that were really, you know, I call, and this is where Jean and I obviously really hit it off as well, because this is what she did. And, you know, some of her colleagues that then became our colleagues. And it was that, that pragmatism of, you know, getting in there and really working it and trying to get more power out (laughs) than power in. And I went, aha, you know, this is where I, I really need to be. So this is what I was gravitating towards. So, you know, as you ask about the field as a whole, you've got folks that have theories, you've got folks that have ideas, you have people that have raised money on the backs of a promise without actually having a working prototype. So what I saw for myself was, geez, if you're trying to run a legitimate organization, you know, where you're creating advocacy around for these folks and for these devices, there has to be some parameters here. There's got to be some guardrails. Otherwise, this isn't credible. (laughs) And how do you work to bring awareness of something that is this huge if the credibility piece isn't there? You know, so yeah, I have a master's in science and, you know, you want to be able to go to look at XYZ and see how it all fits and makes sense and have a paper trail that goes along with it or some type of a trail that goes along with it in terms of validity. So we've worked really hard within our sphere, within our group to come up with testing and vetting protocols. And I think what you'll find is, you know, 95% of the devices don't work as tested. Now, somebody could say, well, that's because, you know, as Gene alluded to, that the testing measurement may not be that great. Well, that could be some of the variables as well. But, you know, we try to use the latest and greatest up-to-date devices. And I am not an engineer, but I work with a lot of engineers who are really good at what they do. And, you know, again, we're a close-knit team. So where are we really at? What I would say as a whole right now, what seems to be, and I'm going to take a leap here and say something, because there is a lot of buzz in the alternative media. And, you know, you do see it on CNN and you are seeing it, you know, posted in other places like more mainstream magazines and news outlets that the Navy has patented a device that can create I don't know if they use the words over unity. I don't have the article in front of me, but you're seeing more of this information popped out in the public domain. And then you're seeing more of this information on alternative media. But on my side of what I do see and why I'm going to say it's a side is there seems to be more inventors that are getting inspired to create these different technologies. Coupled with the fact that We seem to be at this space and place where you have a lot of what I would call working prototypes, but those prototypes do have an issue of consistency and have an issue of scalability. So you could have a working prototype, but let's say it's, you know, outputting a certain amount of power, but maybe that needs to be scaled a bit more. Maybe it needs to work for 
a much longer period of time. So that's where it seems like the field is at right now. It's not so much as, are these things real? I think they are real, at least what I can see. I think Gene would probably say the same thing. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't be doing this. But it's an issue, it seems, of our maturity and how, I mean, energy is a big deal. It's a big deal. How we use the electron is a big deal. Not even getting into spiritual (laughs) conversation. It's a big deal. So maybe this teetering point, this tipping point that we seem to be at right now is because we are being asked to understand this at a much greater level than what has gone on previously. And again, that leads into, you know, much deeper conversation as well. So, you know, what I would say is we seem to be at a bit of this tipping point, And I very much believe that this is not for the select few. I very much believe being able to understand how energy moves and operates within ourselves, with our planet, and with the universe that we live in is an important aspect to just our natural evolution. And this is a part of it. So I could go on and on, but I'm going to stop myself right there. (laughs) No, very well said. Very well said. And the over-unity devices or zero-point energy devices, those are... Definitely exciting. And you also reference anti-gravity in the book, which is a whole other thing that is pretty provocative. And I'm a big believer in the idea that this is a simpler mechanic than people realize and has probably been done many times over history. But I am curious if either of you have seen anti-gravity in the flesh at these concerts or, or <laughs> I mean, at these conferences or even behind closed doors. Well, I've seen John Hutchinson's experiments. Ah, yes. <laughs> now there's a mad scientist. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta love that guy. Yes. He was actually the second inventor that I met, and that was a string of coincidences. So, whatever was happening in his experiments involving you know strong electrostatic forces. But something was going on that was going beyond standard physics and did bring in viewers from military sources. And there was a whole lot of intrigue around his story. Yes. And well, just for people who weren't familiar with him, he did release videos online of his experiments or his demonstrations where he seemed to be able to aim an energy at certain things and get them to float off the table. And it's a lot of things like the liquid inside of a cup, the a bowl or a bowling ball and various different, you know, household items or things that are not super huge, but it kind of alludes to the idea that people talk about in the ancient past they used to levitate stones somehow. I don't know, but that's kind of what John Hutchinson was doing was little levitation experiments in the lab as far as I know. Is that right? That's right. And this is, you know, where some high strangeness comes in. And I was always more interested in the practical, what can we do for humankind rather than what can we do for people who want to do weird things to materials, Mm -hmm. you know, like some of the materials, a metal would turn briefly transparent for long enough for something else to get embedded in it. I saw ordinary table knife embedded in a slab of metal. That's all very interesting, but that really wasn't my main focus. So I spent more time in all those decades looking for the answer for 
ordinary people for our clean energy problems, which are really so crucial right now. It always has been crucial to replace the polluting oil-soaked politics and oil-soaked technologies. But, of course, right now, it's in everybody's face that there's lots of demonstrations asking for a change of regime in the world as far as energy industry goes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's exactly. But as far as anti-gravity experience, and of course, as I've written in the past about T. Townsend Brown and his story, and I know you had an interview with Dr. Paul LaViolette, who really has written the ultimate book on those experiments and technologies. But the inventors that we encounter, the ones that just have these minds that just won't quit, you know, and they see that one thing works in approach in energy generations, and and then they tell me later, okay, now I just want to do some experiments because I've got some ideas about how we can build this anti-gravity craft mm, and yeah. find this. And I'm more of the point of view of, oh, please finish the energy <laughs> generator first, you know. <laughs> Their minds want to hop off to the next thing rather than finish the first one. Yeah, and that's, you know what, it's funny because that's what seems to be the case with the inventors is, I call it like the three tier, the first tier is we just need to get this device out that can allow people to get off the grid and, you know, if something happens, they can have heat and they can have the refrigerators run and they can have electricity. But, you know, what we really want to get to is the, something midstream, which is something between anti-gravity and that first device. But that's something that we hear a lot. So it's almost as if the bottleneck needs to be loosened on some of these inventors, because this is what we hear very, very often. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. And it is just so interesting how the machine keeps all this under wraps. You write in the book about the suppression angle, and there's basically several techniques that you talk about in the book that they use. Compromising the schools and the certifications, we talked about that. Promoting their own cultural thought leaders and experts, these pre-approved people they'll put on TV as the go-to guy for science. You control the patent office, you classify research and materials, you promote red herrings and hoaxes. So, of course, if Dateline NBC or 60 Minutes is going to give airtime to anything in this realm, it's going to be one of these red herrings. And you threaten, you harm, and you destroy. And also purchasing the technology, offering the inventor a non-disclosure, and then burying it. And it never comes out. And that's common as well. And because you are so focused on the strategy side of things, Susan, I'm curious, outside of the good vetting process, that's definitely important. What else are you guys doing to neutralize these suppression tactics? Education. Education is absolutely critical. (laughs) Absolutely critical. I mean, the book, you know, the book is written for a layperson. And the book is also written by two people that I would say are kind of non-traditional in this arena. And that's intentional. Because if you need to get additional awareness, you need to be able to bring in both genders into this area. And the book was written from that perspective. It's written in the sense that, you know, it satisfies engineers, probably curiosity, like somebody that's new that's learning about this. But, you know, from a lay person, I mean, obviously, I'm a woman, the amount of my friends that purchased this book alone, that I would never think in a million years would read this, they're reading it. And, you know, these are people that, you know, may or may not have a degree, but 
They're people that you would not expect, but they're trying to educate themselves because they realize that in order for us to shift our thinking, you've got to be able to get out of maybe your little box using your word earlier that you're in and actually begin to educate yourself in other areas that Because we've been told physics is off topic to you if you don't have some type of a degree. Like it's typically, we don't talk about physics. It's off topic to you. You know, so you find people are being more brave and saying, you know what, maybe this is for me to be able to learn. Maybe it is for me to be able to say something, you know, in regards to my future, in regards to maybe my child's education that I'm paying $35,000 a year that's going to college somewhere, let's say for a degree in sciences, right? So, you know, this is what I think. I think it's the education. You know, what are we doing? There's a lot of education that needs to happen. Like NEM, we're working on a couple of projects right now. They're not out there. They'll probably be out there in about two months. But going deeper from an educational standpoint, and by the way, it's not enough to just educate people on the science and the tech. You also have to be able to educate, well, how did we really get here in the first place? And why did all of this just become acceptable? Why did we just accept this as a norm? I mean, I've spent the last two weeks visiting colleges and working with individuals in colleges to be able to educate them about this. And let me share with you the amount of openness has been off the chart. And it's because they realize who's the they, people at the college setting. And, you know, because we think colleges are always the professors. No, the colleges are the administration. They're the people in the career center. They're the people in the alumni office. There's people in administration that make up, you know, how these professors actually get in. It's not just the professors and the students obviously being able to work with some of the students. So the level of openness right now is much higher than you would suspect. We keep wanting to go after the professor and you know get validation from this professor, but I'll tell you, folks that are in some of these colleges are realizing, and you know these are their words I'm going to say, that we can't answer the need of our students right now. We understand and know that there's something going on and we feel powerless. We don't know what it is that we can do to help. And so when you introduce to them something like this book or this topic, they begin to understand that this is about connecting maybe science, whether you call it spirit or the ether, but the connected universe, so to speak. They understand that this may be one of the things that needs to happen in order for these kids that are in these colleges to be able to feel inspired and to be able to feel like the college is actually giving them something valuable. And we have a young woman that works with us that graduated from college last year, and she echoed the same sentiment that she's beyond what her professors can share. So you're finding that the students are the ones that are sharing this type of information back with their professors. It's an education back and forth, though. And we also have another person that potentially, I say potentially because he's working it out with his professor right now. He's working on his master's degree in physics, and he's working on a potential experiment with us right now. And, you know, this is all great because, again, it's an education back and forth. And, you know, this is one of the many things. The other thing is education as it relates to working with creating a healthy ecosystem for these technologies and the inventors to be supported in, you know, not taking what I call traditional investment 
because that usually seems to just fall flat in its face. And that's typically because you've got an investor that wants to make money off of this. They see, you know, my God, you know, this type of power savings, you know how much money that can make me. So go and make this device and have it be done by this and this day. You know, for some reason, this field doesn't work like that. For some reason, there does seem to be a consciousness, mindfulness aspect to this whole thing. And I think that the more someone is in this, the longer the years that they're in this, this is what we typically, you know, hear afterwards from some of these very experienced PhDs and physicists, astrophysicists and engineers. Mm. Well said. Yes, education is key. And obviously, educating these inventors of today on the cautionary tales of the past is a big part of that and how to avoid those tricks and traps because these system and its agents can be very sneaky and strategic. And let's get weird for a minute. Susan, you are a person that has had a contactee experience. And, oh boy, you know, I've talked to many, many guests who have as well. Like, we're pretty hip to that game. But we've also heard that Tesla used to feel that his ideas were coming in telepathically. And you've written about people in the book who also feel the same way, or they had a near death experience when they were young, and that led them out of body, like this guy. George Merkel, who's done so much lucid dreaming and out-of-body stuff that he says he's learned more about mineralogy from visiting distant planets than he ever learned in a classroom. And that's, of course, provocative. But how common is this element that these inventors seem to have some connection one way or another to the more than human world? Well, (laughs) I would say that it seems to be quite common, but not in all cases. And I do want to pull in Jean for a moment on this because I don't think we can say every one of the inventors that are featured in the book has had, let's say, contact, but they seem to have some type of a epiphany or some type of a higher level connection, whether it's through nature, meditation, thinking that it's their higher self. But you know, I think we can say there's a good amount of people that have. Mm. And their dreams. A lot <laughs> yeah. of them wake up in the morning with aha. And so where did that come from? You're right, there's a whole spectrum of how tuned in the inventors are. Some are pretty close to the mechanistic. But on the other end of the scale, of course, Dr. George Merkel was the most fantastic scientist I ever met. Mm. <laughs> and that's a mind blower. His experiences of traveling in a light body out among the planets and seeing how the different types of minerals there. I mean, that, that's a mind blower. <laughs> yeah. And at the same time that Jean and I were writing this book, there was research that I published with this group last year. Wait, I have to say now, because it's now 2020, a year and a half ago. And that was about people that have had, quote unquote, contact experiences, but it's not all the same type of thing like they saw a certain type of being, right? It came through dream state. It came through either waking up in the morning and laying in bed and having this information come, or it did come through an actual dream. Some people, it came through meditation. Some people, it came through their contact with what they would consider a interdimensional being. And again, some people said it was their higher self, but this one survey that we did that was separate, you know, just to kind of show you, hey, something big is going on here. Out of 
almost 2,500 people, we asked, do you believe that you possess information about like advanced technology, advanced physics, or any scientific information that you've never read or learned about in your normal environment? And 41.7% of those people said yes. That's a significant number to say, hey, something's going on in this state of consciousness that may be important for us to pay attention to. And, you know, what people were getting was lots of things under the sun about how the universe works. But, you know, some of the biggies that I like to talk about, it's like, okay, so what was this really about? And the nature of the information was that the universe is a living system. You know, that was a biggie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just like the importance of that everything is living. And, you know, when I was listening to you and Jean talk earlier, we were talking about like all these different ways that we can extract energy. Well, if everything is alive in the universe, that's implicit that everything has an energetic component to it, right? So fascinating. They were also getting information about consciousness education training basically how to work with their emotion, how to work with intention, how to work with visualization. So this was part of it. It wasn't just, here's this calculation formula, and now this is going to plug into this device. That's not (laughs) entirely it. There does seem to be what I would call like a moral and ethical responsibility that goes along with the acquisition of this type of information. You know, they were also getting, we wonder why, why are they wanting to create anti-gravity technology? Well, you know, some of these folks were being shown how to actually create these ships and how to navigate this, right? Well, for what? Well, maybe because of these earth changes, maybe because of this shift, maybe because of future preparation. But a big aspect to this thing was about feeling this interconnectedness of love. And, you know, they'll talk about geez, you know, this experience was profound. I've got this information, but the love that I felt was overwhelming. You know, it's like nothing that I felt before. So, you know, this is what seems to be coming back here. And, you know, I think these aspects are, you know, really important to pay attention to. And there's a gentleman I've been speaking with as well that he's trying to understand what he got. And this was in a, his friends are Native American He's not, and his friends are, and they took him into a sweat lodge. And what he reported was these downloads of information on how to build this over Unity device. And so he ended up then going to school for engineering to be able to understand how to work with this in what I would call like our day-to-day reality. So, um, you know, I mean, fascinating, right? So these are people that we're trying to help to say, on one hand, it's like, okay, let's look at pragmatically, what do you have? But on the other hand, you're playing what I would call almost like, you know, nurturing mama (laughs) energy, you know, our group is not just me to try to help to bring this to something that they can actually connect in with other engineers or other people that can understand them. Creating these linkages is an enormous part of helping them feel normalized also. And, you know, dare I say, feel better, but feel like they're on task with what they're here to do. So that's one of the most rewarding pieces of this whole thing is helping people to feel like, hey, we're going to help you do what you came here to do. Hopefully, you know, let's help each other make this happen. Yeah, I'm with you. That's very important, that aspect, if I can interject. What Susan was just mentioning about helping the inventors to feel okay about themselves, because I've 
known some dear inventors who really find it painful to live in this world. They have this unusual broader vision or, or ability to see things that others can't and understand things that others can't seem to. But since society hasn't paid any interest and certainly doesn't throw any money their way, and in many ways, they do feel so isolated. It's not like 30 years ago when there wasn't the internet and there wasn't a way you could connect with people online. But still, they need more than that. They need physical face-to-face, you're okay, (laughs) we appreciate you for what you are. Because often they're not socially able to fit in just because it's in their nature to be so driven to put into manifestation what they know is possible, that they spend all their money and their family's money and their neighbor's money, anybody they can borrow on their magnets and their machine shop bills and all the money that it takes to do experiments. And just for lots of reasons, they're socially isolated because nobody else in their community is interested in the sorts of things they're doing. So the human part is really important. And Susan's right, that's where we need the balance of the yin and the yang in in the field to nurture individuals and nurture the teamwork, the collaborative side. Mm. Right on. Yes, I agree. And I can see how it could be very polarizing and isolating to be that kind of person that some of these inventors are. And I could also understand the attraction to keeping some of the high strangeness or consciousness elements out of this stuff just for the sake of mass adoption. I mean, you're hitting people with a lot just with the devices themselves, but it is all connected and It's a very archetypical story, actually, that man in the distant past, like the whole idea of a civilizing trickster or some entity from the stars, whether physical or non-physical, that jumpstarts civilization and teaches people how to live in certain ways. And this could possibly be a round of that. I mean, even contact experiences. When you ask the people like, well, what was the message? It's always about stewardship. It's about that we're destroying the planet. Mm. And even if you look at the crop circle phenomenon, a lot of these patterns that are in the crop circles are the same toroidal vortexes that you see popping up in the new energy movement. So I do think (laughs) there's something out there trying to whisper in our ears, hey, uh, it's time to get to the next level, guys. You know, we helped you get here, but it's time. Let's move it along. Absolutely. And I'll share a small little story with you. I had been looking at a device that was in England, and the next day, that device appeared as a crop circle. And I mean, it was a shared experience, by the way, so it wasn't just (laughs) myself. Otherwise, I would not tell this story. But it was a shared experience. And I mean, you could look at pictures. It's, you know, you can see what the relationship is. But I mean... Listen, I've seen lots of different things and even that made me it made me cry because I was like, "Oh my god, you know, when you feel that aliveness, when you feel it inside of you and then you see, oh, oh man, you know, cuz sometimes we're in our head, like even myself, right? Like sometimes you get in your head and then you get, you know, more into that I don't know what you call it, body intelligence or something. And then you realize that the big magnitude of all of this and you're right. There's communication that's occurring. You know, they're saying, "Hey, look over here." 
or hey, it's right here. <laughs> so just absolutely incredible. You can't make it up. I think some of these amazing stories that Gene has seen throughout the years, it's like you can't make up this stuff because you know real life is a heck of a lot more fascinating, especially in this arena than anything else. <laughs> Cheers. I like it. But <laughs> man, as we're winding down here and getting towards the end of this thing, let me ask you what it is that you hope people do with this information. As a strategist, maybe Susan can talk about this, but how do you want people listening now to potentially help out? Is there something they can do, actionable steps? Jean, would you like to answer that? Well, I don't know if people caught the references to, you mentioned Global BAM and, and NEM, and you probably spelled out that BEM is Breakthrough Energy Movement, and NEM is what you're president of, Susan, the New Energy Movement. And this is where our book comes in on, on helping people to see where they can take a role. Everybody, no matter what your circumstances, can do something to help. Like in the last chapter of the book, particularly, we, we outline steps that people can take to help improve the situation. So if you want to talk a little bit more about the New Energy Movement, Sure. So New Energy Movement is a public education advocacy group. We've actually picked up a couple of additional volunteers in the last couple of weeks and months. And happy to say people are moving along quite nicely and <laughs> providing some great support. So that's wonderful. People are in the process of looking at opening up chapters in their communities, both in the US, Canada, but also outside of the US in Canada. You know, so that's definitely a way that people can get involved. I mean, you know, what people can do here, obviously they can go to NEM, newenergymovement.org. They can go to Breakthrough Energy Movement. I think that's .com. I'm not sure it's .org or .com. Also, they can go to NUI, the Foundation for Moral Technology. So that is the NUIFoundation.com. But one of the things that I think is absolutely important, because your listeners are definitely educated people, mm -hmm. <laughs> Greg, in the sense of, you know, knowing like so many different things that's going on in this field as a whole, whether it's disclosure, whether it's new energy, that the shift on the planet from a cosmological sun planetary scale, or, you know, even some of the other things that are happening. But I would just say that it's really important that we ask ourselves a couple of questions, and that would be... The stories of, well, the energy is, the patent information is going to be released and you know, all this energy technology is going to be released to the public and, you know, here we go, happy days. I don't think it works like that. When you work in this thing every day, you see that there's a lot that's happening and going on, but also we're being asked to understand about this subtler energy in ways I don't think that we've ever been asked before, you know, at least in our lifetime. And Dolores Cannon, I don't know if you've ever heard of her. No. She was this older woman who passed away a couple of years ago, but she was a great hypnotherapist. She taught this thing called quantum healing hypnotherapy. And this is where, when she was doing hypnotherapy, she realized that people were getting, here we were talking about earlier about the contact experiences that people were reporting their past life experiences, contact experiences, like everything under the sun. So it's a well-practiced form of hypnosis today. But she would say, from what I can tell, we come to this planet to learn how to experience and influence energy. Now that's like human energy, right? But maybe the same thing is being asked of us in the energy of the ether, right? And how we generate our electricity, how we generate that energy. So 
to stay in that sovereignty of our understanding versus acquiescing this to someone else, whoever that someone else is. Maybe it's up to us to be able to learn what we can and understand what we can about ourselves and our relationship to the world around us, because it seems very important, you know, and that's one of the things that we're being asked to do. So I would say stay in that sovereignty of working to understand, but also to potentially be, you know, a creator in this process. Mm. Well said, well said. And something I like in your checklist of things that people can do that's in the book is lending your skills in areas like legal, project management, graphics, accounting, media, you don't have to be the inventor of the new energy device to help out. I mean, like everything, it's a very robust team that helps things get to the surface. And you could have all kinds of skills that you might not think relate, and they actually do. Yeah, every skill is needed. Yes. <laughs> every There's not one skill that's not needed. I mean, we're talking about a planetary transition. It's all needed. Of course. And the last thing I really wanted to ask you about is just the conferences because they are such a big part of this. Um, really, because there's different groups running different conferences, what is, say, the next conference that you guys will be at and maybe people should attend or try to? Energy Science and Technology Conference for people who really want to learn how to build these things. But Susan can talk to the Energy Movement conferences, New Energy Movement. Yeah, so Breakthrough Energy Movement, they obviously had their conference this past year. They hadn't had one, I think, for the last two years or so. But from what I understand, they're going to have another one probably in November, maybe in Amsterdam as well, which is where it was last year. So that's for technical people, but it's also for people that want to understand, participate in the other aspects that support Breakthrough Energy that's happening in November. Very cool. Yes, that is where people can find me. I get a lot of criticism that I don't really get out in the world. And yeah, I could go to the conspiracy conferences if I need to see another 9-11 slideshow. But to me, where the rubber meets the road is the new energy kind of stuff because it's still suppressed and it's way more exciting. And it's something we can actually use in the future rather than going over past events again and again. But man, this has been a lot of fun, ladies. I appreciate everything you're doing. And this has been one of my favorite shows in a while. I can't wait for people to hear it. A lot of provocative stuff. And this book is great. It's so comprehensive from the fundamentals of understanding this new paradigm to the history, to the bright minds working on these things today. It really is a complete case front to back. So very cool. And uh, I look forward to the future. Take care out there. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. I hope I meet you at one of the conferences, Greg. <laughs> Indeed. Holy ether fueled lithiometer people, the powerful women of the weird science movement. Mm, hell of a show, if you ask me. And I know we've been hitting this particular branch on the higher side tree pretty hard lately. And honestly, I did plan on taking a break from it for a while. But then James DeMeo said he would do an interview. And then I thought, okay, now we're going to pause on this and hit some other areas. But then Gene and Susan's book was released, and I thought, okay, we'll do this, and then we'll take a break from ether physics and this sort of stuff, because there is just so much under the higher side umbrella. But what I loved so much about this one is that it's not just a deep dive into one particular person's work and theories. 
It's a journalistic look at the overall landscape, the history of it, the current state of things, and how to bring it all together and strategize a true rollout. It's what we need, and it's a beautiful thing. And when we start talking logistics and PR and strategy, it all starts to feel very real and very close. The dominant of wider inclusion and all that. And it's also a happy accident that the best voices for this particular layer of things are also voices that bring some diversity to the table. Not a lot of ladies hitting on this particular topic. And not to get into it, and there are exceptions to every rule, but I've heard psychologists say that, broadly speaking, one of the biggest mental differences between the interests of men and women is that women are interested in people and men are interested in things. Which is why you have a lot of male tinkers out there, mechanics or plumbers or electricians or inventors. And you have a lot of women in positions or jobs or careers that deal more with people, like teachers or HR positions and that sort of thing. But I don't know. To me, this is a great example of what more female energy would bring to this particular table. Again, broadly speaking, and no pun intended. But you could also see how, otherwise, you would have a bunch of hermit-type, socially awkward guys tolling away in their separate garage labs. Which is what a lot of the history of hidden energy looks like, and if we're going to talk conspiratorially, it's a lot easier to pick off and suppress those individuals when those are the conditions of the movement. But either way, I was very happy when this one was done. I knew it would be a popular thing with the people. And it's also the best we've been able to do regarding this connection between plasma and disembodied consciousness since we had Eric Dollard here. And even though I did just say I'm very consciously trying to pursue some other subject areas for you, the one thing in this realm that I'd like to get into sooner rather than later is the Sapphire Project. And yes, that was all in the Plus Show. Sorry, free listeners, but you don't just jump into the sudden emergence of non-human intelligence from plasma reactions. You have to work up to that sort of stuff. <laughs> and it is why the Plus Shows are always better, but I say this every week. I still think we got a great breakdown of the field in the first hour, lots of names and inventions to investigate further, lots of thoughtful examinations of how the system attacks this field and what we can do to counteract that. A very important piece of this puzzle, clearly. It is another case where I would love for everyone to hear every bit of the full two-hour show, but programs like this only survive in three ways. Reliance on sponsors and advertisers, being subsidized and funded by major networks, even though you lose the money because you're still suiting an agenda of theirs, or direct A to B listener funding. There is really no other way for a show to generate staying power. And how much more can I really give before a particular listener might think that they should reciprocate? I mean, you already get half. And my pitch for Plus is a bit different than most because I'm really not hurting. I mean, hey, did you see my new car? <laughs> but THC is not going anywhere. I'm not going to pretend that we might disappear suddenly if you don't sign up soon. There is no threat insinuated or gun to your proverbial head. It's really just that you're missing out on a lot. 
You're clearly already into this stuff, and if you're gonna give a waiter eight bucks for writing down how you like your steak and bringing you five plates of food, I would like to think that the service here is at least that good. But whatever, I guess I should also just throw in the plus show topics now. But outside of the plasma stuff and the sapphire project, we also touched on some other highlights from the history of free or clean energy devices and engines, the potential dangers of working with unseen energies, the work of Ken's shoulders, and also what's happening in the realm of health and healing devices. And I do hope the Health and Healing Devices is their follow-up book. Lots of exciting stuff there, too, and they definitely seem to have their finger on that pulse. So there we have it. For the people who have written me and said they're tiring of this topic and want to get back to a wider range of themes, I hear you. We are doing that now. But I'm definitely going to be keeping tabs on this field for anything new or different that makes the whole thing worth revisiting. And check out the book if you want to dive in further. If you have people in your life that are reading science books or Neil deGrasse Tyson's dribble, this is the book they really need. And that's the show. I'm so glad they were willing to do it. Big thanks to both guests. It came out really well. Two guests can sometimes be a bit challenging for the editor, and big thanks to him too. The next episode coming at you is completely off the radar. You probably couldn't guess it if you tried, but I'll give you a one-word clue. Walrus. I've said too much. I'm getting out of here. Your move, secret science suppressors, hidden energy hiders, and upholders of the corporate energy apple cart. Your fucking move. Oh no, you see... The world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings Control over everything The nine to five is trying to steal ya Now don't that job seem silly? Hello, can you hear me? Or should I play back recordings? Some spike agency Wish we were younger And free I'll be thankful when it's all exposed The vast conspiracy There's such a difference Between us And the damn Cartoons. It's so typical of me 
talk about the stuff I'm sorry that's good and well did you ever hear the argument that nothing really happens it's no secret and that the best is plus it's doubling your time